I need to give just a bit of history before I actually get into the scripture this morning. As you know, I have finished six years here. I came in February of 2008, and in October of that same year, I received a a very clear and very specific vision. It came as these things often do. I didn't expect it. I wasn't even pursuing God about this question, but he hit me with a very, very clear vision. And the vision was that First Baptist Church sundown, for whatever length of season he chose, he was asking us to be an emergency room. Now again, we understand emergency rooms, we understand that they're different from the hospital, they're different from a clinic that you would go into, they kind of have a unique purpose and a very specific purpose, and I understood very quickly what God was asking. I understood very quickly what he was challenging us to do. And so I went to the deacons and I shared that vision with them and I told them something. I said, if we accept the vision that God's giving, if we say yes in obedience to what God has shown us, then the yes will come together in unity and immediately what happens in this sanctuary will begin to change. Because one of the things that you would expect in an emergency room that you wouldn't even expect in a hospital is that people are going to come here who need urgent care. People are going to come here who need immediate help. They're not going to know exactly always how to behave. When you get in the emergency room, you hear all kinds of crying, you hear all kinds of screams, you hear all kinds of demands or requests for help. But the uniqueness of an emergency room is that everything is pressing. Everything needs to be tended to right now. And the deacons that were in place at the time said had an immediate yes. I took it to the staff, I took it to the board of directors and shared the same thing. And immediately there rose this unity of a yes that says, if God has spoken it over this body, then we want to accept that mantle of responsibility that that means. And immediately when that yes came collectively from this church, that God started sending us some of the most brokenhearted people I've ever seen in my life. Broken in every form, in every fashion. Broken hearts, broken minds, brokenness physically. And God was very faithful, knowing that if he was going to speak it, there was also going to be a provision that went with it. Luke chapter 137 is very specific about that. It says, nothing is impossible with God. That's the way it reads in English. In Greek, it doesn't read that way at all. In Greek, that same scripture says, The word nothing isn't two words, it's three words. It's no thing rhema, the spoken word of God. So it's only when God speaks it, it becomes possible. So if God was going to speak a vision over this church, then the provision that moved that from impossible to possible was attached to it. And we began to realize how quickly and how serious God was by the nature of the brokenhearted people that he brought here. Some of the strange things that you, on, you see on a Sunday morning or that you hear on a Sunday morning that can actually be irritating to us because it's never been that way before. Many of those things that happen are simply the way that someone's crying out for help. Not everybody cries and says like they do in the mercy room, I need help. Some people with a broken heart, just they don't even know how to scream for help. They just come broken. So, so many of the things that we see so many of the things that are done, are all, are, that happen here, are because God asked us to be in an emergency room. We accepted that mantle, and he started sending brokenhearted people. 
And I can tell you we have been blessed now for five and a half years under that mantle because we have seen dozens and dozens of people whose lives are tremendously changed, dramatically changed. I shared with this with you a while back that a man came up, he was visiting here, and he caught me right here, and he says, he says, I really feel at home here. And I said, well, I'm so glad you did, and you do. And he said, no, you don't understand. He said, I just got out of prison. I don't feel at home anywhere. And he said, I'm so blessed to be here this morning. And I said, well, you're in good company. And he said, what do you mean? And I said, well, from where I'm standing, with the people that were still here, he said, I can see five drug addicts recovered, two drug pushers. I said, that's who, that's who I can see. And he said, I don't see any of those people. And I said, I'm so grateful that you can't see them, that you, that you can't detect them anymore, because God has restored them. God has healed them. He has delivered them. He's restored their hearts. He's restored their identity. I'm so glad you can't spot them. And I want to tell you this morning, starting right here, that this, that this is a body of people who have been transformed. I used to be, and I'm not anymore. That's our testimony. I once was lost, and now I'm saved. I once was addicted, and I'm not anymore. I once was blind, and now I see. That is our collective story. We come in expecting, recognizing that some who come in here are blind, some broken, some who are lame. And what a better place for them to come than into the presence of God here among his people. And what God asks us to do. I taught this in Sunday school this morning. What God asks us to do individually and collectively is to host the presence of God. To just bring in Him into this story. Because we talked this morning how amazing it was with Peter that because of his reputation the people would line up along the road because when his shadow would fall on them they would be healed. Because he knew how to host the presence of God. Paul they would come and touch him with a garment, with, some, with a handkerchief or something. And then they'd take that that had touched Paul and they'd take it to someone who was sick and that person would be healed. We stand in amazement of that reality of that story. But I want to tell you that they, what Paul knew, what Jesus knew, what Peter knew was how to host the presence of God. They didn't have to try to do anything. They did what they did so naturally because they knew how to host the presence of God. I can tell you one of the things that we're learning, I'm not sure how good we are at it yet, but we're learning and we're better today in knowing how to host the presence of God. I hope when you walk in this morning, you realize that there are people here who love you. There are people here who truly care about your story and about where you sit with, in relationship to God and with, with each other, that you're truly cared for in this body. I pray that you would never feel judged here because the presence of God won't allow it. I just pray that, that's, that that is your experience because this is what God spoke. When he asked us about the mantle, this was the scripture he gave us and it was very, very clear. Isaiah 61, verse 1. You can find it in your Bible or you can look at it on the screen. It says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. So I understood very well when he gave the vision and he gave this scripture, I knew what he was asking us to do. 
He wanted us to preach good tidings. He wanted us to be able to share the, the love and the joy that he brings. And that's what makes it good. He wanted us to, to bind those whose hearts had been broken so that they could heal. He wanted us to proclaim liberty to the captives. And he wanted us to open prisons to those who are bound and to preach that this is the year of the Lord, that, that he is a God of right now. But I want to address this morning one of the greatest challenges that we as believers face. And we don't even recognize that it's a problem. I'm going to put Riley on the spot this morning. He didn't know it. I'm going to ask you only those things that I know that you would know the answer to. Because of your resume, what you have already done in your life, I want to ask you this question. How successful would would the U.S. military be if across the board the U.S. military was ignorant? Not successful at all. I can guarantee you the reason that we are successful is because we understand some things that are critically necessary. The activities, the actions of not only me, but the person beside me, of those around me, have to be coordinated. I have to know how to use my weapon. I have to understand commands. There's so many things that come into the training, and we spend time and commit, commit that time for training so that our U.S. military will be well prepared and ready to advance at an army when, as an army whenever necessary, whenever called. Because how much damage would ignorance bring into that military? I want to tell you it would be devastating. And we can understand very quickly what the result of that would be. Well, listen to this scripture in Hosea. Hosea chapter 4, verse 6. He said, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge, because they have, thou hast rejected knowledge, I will also reject thee that thou shalt not be priest to me, seeing that thou hast forgotten the law of thy God. I will also forget thy children, as they were increased, so they sinned against me. Therefore will I change their glory into shame. I want to tell you, ignorance is drastically affecting how we are able to receive God to, for ourselves. Ignorance is such a huge block, and I'll I'll, I'll address this more specifically, but I want to tell you, most of us have very shallow relationships in our understanding with God, almost to the point where the only thing we understand is what it meant for Him to save us. Why did He save us? What was the purpose in His saving us? Why did God choose to invade this earth with the supernatural reality of Jesus if there was no expectation that we too would exist in that supernatural reality? I want to tell you it is so odd for us to know so little about what this relationship with God actually looks like and that we have been okay with knowing so little. But I want to tell you the real dire effect of the ignorance and the lack of knowledge that God is speaking of here for us as his people. I'm talking about Christians, not the world, but as Christians. The number one thing that is done for us to have this lack of knowledge is as greatly handicapped us or hindered us from being able to be effective within our world today and be able to bring the supernatural reality of Jesus to a world who desperately needs it. Why do do most people in the world say that they love God and don't like Christians? It tells us that there's a strange disconnect between what we know about God and we've been okay living, existing, knowing so little. And God is saying over his people, they're destroyed because of a lack of knowledge. My goodness. It seems like what an easy remedy that would be. 
I want to tell you, we don't spend much of our time. We don't commit much of our energy. Why is it demanded of a soldier that that's the very first thing that they do? Why is it demanded that the very first thing they do is to go to that training so that they can begin to understand what is expected, what is required, vocabulary that they need to know, expectations of them, and how it's trained into them so that they can respond quickly. We miss the basic training. And we've grown perfectly okay with it. And it has, again, greatly affected our ability to receive it for ourselves, but more especially our ability to, to share it with others. You notice in that scripture in Hosea chapter 4 that they're not destroyed because God has lost his love for them. It's because they lack knowledge. They're not destroyed because they don't know anything. They're destroyed because they, the little that they do know, this is hard to say, but it's absolute truth. The little bit that they do know makes them believe that they know it all. Because most Christians are the hardest people in the world to teach. Why? Because they, they're convinced that what I know, I know it all. They lack the knowledge of God because they refuse to believe in revelation, which reduces God to one that we can reason and understand. I want to say that again. If you don't believe that God is a God of revelation, then what we're left with is understanding God by reason because there is no revelation. Most of us have an understanding of God that looks like this. We started with the qualities and characteristics of men. We improved those and reasoned from there up to a version of God. So what that actually does then is it gives God human qualities. It gives God human characteristics. So if I start with a man, are, are men fickle? We understand that we as men move from ridiculous to reasonable, from quiet to angry. We know that the, we, there's variableness in who we are. If we do that to God, if we reason up to God, what attribute is God going to have? He's going to be variable. We're going to believe that we can make God mad. We're going to believe that if I'm bad, God gets angry. We're going to believe if we're good, God loves us. And we're going to assign that characteristic to God because we started with man, reasoned up to an understanding of God. And God says, you'll never know me that way. The only way that you'll know me is when the Holy Spirit begins to reveal to you my true identity. And that's when you're going to know that you can't do anything to make me love you more and you can't do anything to make me love you less. Because I'm not human. I am not going to treat you as men treat you, as women treat you, because my heart, my nature is love, my nature is goodness, and that's who I am. But you'll never get that by reasoning. You have to receive it by revelation. So, so many of us don't know, have much understanding of God and have a relationship with God and intimate with God because we've decided that when I look into his face, he must be disappointed in me. He must be frowning. And I want to tell you this morning, when, you, when God looks at you, he looks at you with great delight. When Kate was in about the sixth grade, she was in the class and they were doing a project. And they needed to cut a board. So she and her friends sneak into the other room, get the saw out plug it in, she cuts the board and gets in tremendous amounts of trouble. And I'm so glad she got in trouble. And I'm so glad they disciplined her and told her that she shouldn't do it. <clears throat> but as a dad, boy, I'm cheering her on. 
I am so proud of the fact that, that she had the initiative. She was brave. She might have been foolish in the moment, but she was confident. There were so many things there that I was proud of. I want to tell you, as our Father looks at us, there may be things that we're doing that, that are just foolish things, but I want to tell you, it will not erase the smile off of God's face when he looks at you. He made you. He loves you. He's amazed by you. He formed you. He gave you an identity. And he loves you. I want to tell you, he is, stands with the characteristics of God. But we have to understand that by revelation. And so many of us have removed that. In context, it also says that we lack knowledge of God's word, which builds a personal history that is unique between you and God. I want to tell you that we need to spend time, not out of repetition, but we need to spend time in God's word because every one of us need to be able to say, on Tuesday night, a couple of weeks ago, I was reading God's Word, and these words left the page, and they became life to me. And now I have a personal history with God's Word. We need that. And this book goes untouched day after day and week after week because we have no desire. We lack that knowledge, and God says you're destroyed because of a lack of knowledge. I want to tell you, this book was given to us as a gift. And we need to pursue it, not so that we can gain just knowledge, but so that we can gain a personal history and say that this is how God spoke to me. I learned. And I was amazed how God spoke. And the words became spirit, and they became truth to me. Again, I'm amazed at the number of Christians who do not believe that God is the God of revelation, even though Paul has prayed that God would give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation. And that when Jesus asked Peter, who do men say that I am? What amazed Jesus in the response was not that Peter got the right answer. What amazed Jesus when Peter gave the right answer was he said, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. He was amazed that Peter had received a revelation from God that had brought the truth that other men couldn't understand. And he says, upon that revelation, I'll build my church. The church was designed to be a people of revelation. And how amazing it is that we refuse to even believe that God is still a God of revelation. I'm amazed at how many Christians today still don't believe that God speaks. Even though Romans tells us that faith comes by hearing, a gerund, hearing, present tense and continuing, and that and we'll hear by every word, rhema, that proceeds from the mouth of God. Faith comes because we can hear, not yesterday, but we can hear today. And we will hear tomorrow. And it's coming from not the, just the Logos word, it's coming from the rhema word. The rhema word is a live voice speaking a, a new truth or a fresh revelation. That's the rhema word. That's how we have faith, because we hear. And how many Christians have no willingness to accept that God speaks? I want to tell you, when somebody wakes up to that truth, it is one of the most exciting things I've ever seen in my life. When they suddenly hear God for the first time and know that he spoke something. I have a lady that I meet with in Lubbock on Friday mornings and, and to hear that few weeks ago at 5.33 in the morning when God spoke her, her true identity. She heard it for the first time, what God called her, what he spoke over her. I want to tell you this is one of the most exciting things you'll hear when somebody says, I heard God and I knew it was him. And we need to understand how to hear from God. I'm amazed at the number of Christians who don't believe that there's a life in the Spirit. A spirit life. I'm amazed at the number of preachers who combine soul and spirit. 
when the Bible clearly says the dividing asunder of both soul and spirit, that they're never the same. You can never exchange those words one for the other. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. This is a pretty long passage, but I want us to understand what God is telling us about the need for our understanding. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, I want to begin with verse 1. He says, now concerning spiritual gifts. Well, I will tell you in the original Greek, the word gifts is not in the text. So if we read it as it would be in the Greek, it would say, now concerning those things which are spiritual. Because it's that time that Paul begins to use spiritual gifts to explain what a spirit life looks like. So he says, now concerning spiritual, brethren, I would not have you ignorant. You know that you were Gentiles carried away unto these dumb idols, even as you were led. Wherefore, I give you to understand that no man speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed, and that no man can say that Jesus is Lord, but by the Holy Ghost. Now there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are differences of administration, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of operations, but it is the same God which works all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all, to profit others. For to one is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom, to another the word of knowledge by the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another the gifts of healing by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another concerning discerning of spirits, to another diverse kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. But all these work that one and the self-same Spirit dividing to every man severally as he will. For as the body is one and hath many members, and all the members of that be one body, being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink in one Spirit, for the body is not one member, but many. The Holy Spirit is telling by Paul, I want you to understand what spirit life looks like. He doesn't want us to be ignorant of this spiritual reality. He makes this statement regarding our spiritual reality and then uses those spiritual gifts to tell us the truth of it. I read recently a a little excerpt from a book, a guy named Chris Valentin. He is a a part uh, ministry in Redding, California. And I'm going to just read this quote. His experience here has been much more vast than mine. He speaks and ministers to thousands upon thousands. And he's got a fascinating story of the brokenness he came through to come to this understanding. He says, although Christians typically acknowledge this unseen realm on some intellectual level, I personally do not think they really believe that the spirit world has any effect on their daily lives. And I want to tell you, I find that statement to be absolutely true as well. That most Christians have some mental understanding some mental ascension into the reality of something above them, but don't have any belief that that spirit life involves them on a daily basis. And I think that is astounding. How strange it would be for us to say, I have absolutely no need of my physical body to go about my daily life. I have absolutely no need for my mind or my emotions, my soul, to go about my daily life. How we can so separate and say, I have no need for my spirit and the spirit life that that exists in it to go about my daily life. It is ridiculous 
It's to believe that I don't need my body, I don't need my mind, I don't need my emotions, but for some strange reasons, we believe that the spirit reality, our spirit life, has no touch, no contact with our life on a daily basis. How strange that is. He goes on to say, teaching some people about the spirit world feels very much like trying to convince someone in the 1800s that there really was such a thing as germs and that those germs could make them sick or even kill them. Over the last two centuries, medical and technological discoveries advanced our understanding of this previously unseen natural realm and saved millions of lives. I can specifically note that our world today seems to be waking up to the reality of the spirit and the working of the spirit. But how much faster, how much more effectively could God disperse the truth if we did not resist the truth? How much faster could the Christian world touch the lost world if we didn't have our hands up pushing back the truth of God and holding it at bay because it doesn't match what we believe we already know? because somehow we've convinced ourselves that we already know it all. At some place in our life, we're going to have to come to the reality that the spirit world is real. You may not want to go there. If people are going to be delivered, if people are going to be healed, if people are going to be saved, if they're going to be restored, if they're going to be touched, then there has to be an understanding and acceptance of the reality that the spirit world is real. Turn with me, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 2. Again, with Paul beginning in verse 1. He says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. We have to come to the reality that the spirit world is real, that we truly have to come to that understanding. At some point, Within our Christian lives, we need to come to the understanding that the Spirit of God has come to take up residence in us, that he might work through us to build a kingdom. Romans chapter 8, beginning with verse 14, says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father, The Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. So we not only have to accept that there's a reality of a spirit world and that we are trained to function within that spirit world, we also have to know that the way that we're trained, the way that we come to understanding is that the Spirit of God has come to take up residence in us. He's called the Spirit of Truth and He will lead us into all truth. Romans 8 bears witness very powerfully with that reality that we are the sons of God and that we are led by the Spirit of God, and that we have received the Spirit of adoption. That is the spirit world in which we live. At some point in our Christian life, we also have to come to the reality that Satan is a true enemy, and that he is to be dealt with by the Spirit, that we have no power against him, no authority to deal with him if we don't deal with him from the Spirit. But most of us would be just perfectly content if we never had to consider it, if we never had to talk about it, if we never had to think about it. Well, I want to tell you the reality of Satan's impact is around us everywhere we go. And if we ignore it, then we as soldiers have let the enemy come into the presence of our camp and he will wreak havoc. And he does daily within our lives because we won't and we don't deal with him. 
And I'm not talking about praising him and glorifying him because I'm, I'm totally against that. But I want to tell you what I need to know is when he comes up in front of me, what do I say to put him in his place and to remove him from the presence? I want to tell you we have the authority by the word of God, by the power of God, by the spirit of God to deal in a spirit world when we speak the name of Jesus that that darkness in front of us has to be removed. He has to go. When you begin to function in that reality, I could tell you testimony after testimony of going into people's homes and dealing with that darkness. And some of you have been there with us and, and we, have a, we have another one that we need to do right now. But I want to tell you it's a, it's a reality that we have the authority not in fear but with a certainty to deal in that spiritual realm. Anyone who steps into my office, we see that tragic impact of the reality of Satan, that he comes in a moment of brokenness, in a moment when where someone has said something to us and broken our heart. Satan comes in in that moment, and he speaks a lie to us. It gives us an identity that is not the identity of God, and when we accept it, we begin to function in that broken identity and produce a fruit that doesn't look anything like the kingdom. God is about setting those people free. That's what he has called us to do within this body, within the church, much larger than this group. Sitting here this morning, God has called us to set those captives free. From what? From an enemy. We have to understand that we're dealing with a person, and by a, by a more powerful person, we have the authority to overcome. Greater is he, finish that, that is in me than he that's in the world. I want to tell you that authority has been placed and resides in us because Jesus says that power has been given to me and by the way, I'm giving it to you. At some point in our Christian life, we have to understand that Satan is real and that by the Spirit, we deal with it. At some point in our Christian life, we have to understand that the Spirit is leading us, teaching us, instructing us by revelation, by dreams, by visions, by words of prophecy, by words of knowledge, to fully understand that he's coming again and that he's coming soon. Go with me to 2 Peter. I want to end with this passage. It's a relatively long one, but I want you to hang in there as I read it because it's a better message than I could preach. 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning with verse 7. The Holy Spirit records by the words of Peter, but the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. So he's saying, be ready. Don't be ignorant. Don't be caught off guard. It will not pay. Stand before God and say, I, God, I, I, I'm sorry, I just didn't know. How many of us at the day of judgment, when it's our time to stand at the Bema? It says very clearly in 1 Corinthians 3 and 2 Corinthians 5 that we as believers are going to stand at the Bema seat. There's going to be a time when we give an account of our life that we lived after we became a Christian. We'll be judged whether we're lost or saved because only the saved will be there. But the saved will stand there before God, before Jesus. There'll be an account of what we've done with this life from the time of our salvation to the time of that we stand there. Can you imagine standing there when Jesus said, you know, I'm going away, but I'm going away so that I can send the spirit of truth and he will lead you into all truth. Everything you know of real deep truth is going, you're going to receive by the Holy Spirit. 
and I'm going to not only send him, when you become a Christian, I'm going to put him inside of you as the indwelling Spirit of God. I'm going to put him that close so that you don't have to go to church to find him. You don't have to go to Sunday school to find him. You don't even have to go to the Word of God to find him because I'm going to put a person inside of you to talk to you and tell you the truth. And it's our turn to stand at the Bema seat looking at Jesus who did all that for us and say, Jesus, I'm so sorry. I just didn't know. I don't think it's going to be a great answer. He says, my people are destroyed because of a lack of knowledge. Let's read a little bit further. Verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but he is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwells righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that you look for such things, be diligent that you may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. And account that this long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are learned, unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction. So he's basically saying they, they wrestle with these things. Ye therefore, beloved, seeing you know these things, pay attention to those words, seeing that you know these things before, beware lest you also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. But grow in grace and in knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Well, the instruction within that passage is so specific and so clear. He's saying, what manner of person should you be now? Understanding, with the understanding, that he's coming again. How strange it must look. If you knew tomorrow, as they, in the hurricane areas of our world, that tomorrow this huge hurricane is going to come on land and you're going to be in its direct path, and you take no notice of it whatsoever. That you make no provision, that you take no steps, you don't guard yourself in any way. What would we say about that person? They are a fool. How strange it is for us to understand that Jesus is coming again. How strange it is for within that passage to understand what's going to happen on this earth, to this earth, that we trust and put our faith in, what God's going to do with it, and we make no provision for that day. What does he call us? You fool. I don't know what would be necessary for you. I have enough time dealing with me. I don't even know exactly what to challenge you to do today. I just know this. If you're accepting today that the little bit of knowledge that you have is okay, please heed the warning in Hosea that my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Knowledge is not the answer. 
But knowledge will lead us to truth. Truth will lead us to the person of Christ, to the reality of the Spirit, to the understanding of how He works and of His ultimate coming. It starts with a commitment to gain that knowledge that we have said has been so elusive and that we have barely regarded. It's a message of challenge you can't answer by coming to the altar. It's not a message that you can answer in a day. It's a message that you have to answer with a lifetime. A message that you have to answer with daily choices and decisions that you make. I would encourage you to pursue knowledge. Always by the Spirit, through the Spirit, in the Spirit, pursue knowledge. Let Him be the revealer of truth. And watch Him radically, radically change who you are and how you minister to others.